Welcome again, friends, uh, to our Wednesday night fellowship. Uh, all semester long, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, uh, a series uh, that we're doing this semester called God's Mission uh, to Save the World. Uh, we saw at the very beginning that this is a book that was written by the likes of you for the likes of you, that you might have certainty about the things that you've been taught about Jesus, right? so that you might be sure that who he is, uh, that he is who he says he is. Um, that you might have a sure foundation for your faith. Last week, we, um, we looked at a story in Luke uh, chapter 8. We saw a man named Jairus rush up to Jesus and to ask him to heal his daughter who's dying. And on the way, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years comes up to Jesus and she touches him and power escapes him. We looked at that story in some detail and we concluded that Jesus doesn't want sort of a come and go relationship with you. He wants a come-and-go-with relationship with you. He doesn't want to simply heal you of your diseases and then send you on your way. He doesn't want to just fill up your gas tank and then wave goodbye and say, I see you in 500 miles. He wants to go with us. He wants to be by our side. He wants to go on this journey, this road trip with us. Now, as you all know, the key ingredient to any good road trip is good music. The playlist is so important. A band that often makes it onto my playlist is an Ohio-based band called The National. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, some. (laughs) It's kind of obscure. You should check them out. Megan and I have seen a couple of their concerts uh, in Montreal and also in Boston. A fun fact, uh, The National played a six-hour-long concert in New York City one time. And that's a long concert. But it's even more interesting when you consider that in that six-hour concert, they only played one song, and they played it over a hundred times. And that song is a song called Sorrow. And that sorrow begins with these lyrics. Sorrow found me when I was young. Sorrow waited. Sorrow won. Sorrow that put me on the pills. It's in my honey. It's in my milk. Now, Sorrow's track two of their best-selling album, High Violet. Track two of their very next album is called Demons. The title of that album is Trouble Will Find Me. Here's why I mention all this. We're taking a road trip, as it were, through the Gospel of Luke. And as we've gone on this road trip, I hear a lot of the national, I hear a lot of these lyrics playing in the background. Think about it. Jesus has taken us on a tour, a parade of sorts, into a storm, into a graveyard, back to the other side of the sea where a man's daughter is dying, and then to the side of a road where a bleeding woman is healed. Now, why has Jesus taken us on this tour? Why do I hear the national playing in the background as we go on this trip? Jesus is taking us on a journey through these passages because this is where we live. It's our neighborhood. It's our world. He comes to us where we are, and he meets us where we are at. And the Bible is saying something about our world as we go on this journey. It's saying something about our needs. It's saying something about your needs. But it's not just saying something about our world and about us. It's also saying something powerful about who Jesus is and what he is capable of. Yes, this sorrow is true, but there's something also very true about this man. 
As we go on this journey with Jesus, don't just look out the windows. Look at the man behind the wheel. Pay attention to the world, but also pay attention to him too. The Jesus that we meet in the Gospel of Luke is not a Hallmark Channel, hippie kind of Jesus who speaks in soft whispers and dispenses free hugs. He's tender, to be sure, but he rides into storms, and he marches into graveyards, and he casts out demons, and he doesn't put band-aids on bullet holes. He reaches into the darkness, and he pulls bullets out. He's tender, yes, and you'll see that on display tonight, but dang, he is powerful too. Right? He is a, a lamb, but he's also a lion. And truth be told, we want our God to be both of those, don't we? And that is what you get in the person of Jesus. Now, if you recall, we only got halfway through the story last week. I left you sort of teetering on the edge of a cliff. I'm going to rescue you. We're going to, st- we're going to pick up with that story right now. Our story began with a man named Jairus. We want to start with him again tonight, picking up at verse 40. Before we look at God's word, I'm going to pray and ask him to help us understand what he has to say to us tonight. Father, thanks for bringing us together tonight on this Wednesday night. Thank you for feeding us with good food for Felino's pizza. Thank you for friends to share it with. We also thank you for speaking, for, for not leaving us alone, but for coming to us, for giving us your son, for giving us your word that points us to him for drawing us into a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that we would hear your voice tonight speaking, that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you and a heart that is ready to receive and believe what it is you want to impart to us tonight. Lord, would you do this for our good and for your glory? We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to project Luke 8, starting at verse 40 up here, but you can also follow along. Uh, Maybe you have a Bible app on your cell phone. You also have some Bibles here on the table. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. They're our gift to you, uh, including those Jesus Storybook Bibles uh, by the side. But here, this is Luke 8, uh, starting at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, this is where he returned from the other side of the sea, the crowd welcomed him, for they, all, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he, had had, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Stop there. Tonight's story begins like last week's story began, with a man desperate for a cure for his daughter. We could say he is anxiously looking for a superman, and we are too. Anxiety is one of those words, like shame, that gets thrown around a lot in our culture these days. Everybody seems to be suffering from it. But what exactly is it? Well, doctors, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, they'll all tell you that anxiety is what you feel when your body is under extreme stress. It is stress-induced fear. That's what anxiety is, stress-induced fear. A panic attack or an anxiety attack is what happens when you are feeling overwhelmed with apprehension, worry, in distress. Now, according to the American Psychological Association, anxiety is a top pressing concern amongst college students. The American College Health Association reports that 63% of college students in the U.S. felt overwhelming anxiety in the past year. 
And in the same survey, 23% reported being diagnosed or treated by a mental health professional for anxiety in the past year. And the problem seems to be getting worse. There is not one contributing factor to anxiety. The studies have proven that there are some usual suspects. The more time you spend on social media, the less sleep you get. The more you drink caffeine, right, the more anxious you're going to feel. Now, some of us need to take that to heart. We need to spend less time on Instagram. Maybe need to drink a little bit less coffee. Maybe get a little bit more sleep. Those things will help. But our problem, our underlying problems with anxiety, right, cut much deeper than this. I think anxiety really is a symptom of the times that we are living in. Right, think about it, friends. This generation, your generation, what sociologists are calling Generation Z or the Centennials, it's a generation that constitutes people who were born 1997 on. That's everyone pretty much in this room, with the exception of maybe three of us. Right? This is a generation, right? Generation Z, that has grown up in the wake of 9 11. From the earliest age, you have seen images and video clips of planes full of people crashing into buildings full of people. And this wasn't an accident. This happened on purpose. From the earliest age, that's what you saw. This is a generation that has grown up in the wake of Columbine. That happened in 1996. You all were born after that. School shootings and the threat of domestic terrorism is a daily thing in America. You all went to school not thinking, could this happen to me, but when will this happen to me? School shootings is a part of your daily life. Something at least to be concerned about, to worry about, to be anxious about. There's terror at home, there's terror abroad. And what this means is that, is that this generation, your generation, has grown up forever at war. War in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, war with ISIS in Syria, storm clouds of war brewing over Iran and North Korea and the South China Sea. It dawned on me today that you have never known the United States of America during a time of peace. It's not just the threat of terrorism and school shootings and North Korean nuclear missiles landing on our shores. This is a generation, yours is a generation, that is watching the seas swallow up our cities as the threat of global climate change becomes more and more real. Now, I am not in this generation, but I see these things and I feel them too. And I feel my heart accelerate even as I say these things now. I feel anxiety in my body too. We all do. We are an anxious people. We are under stress. To say nothing uh, of the stress that you feel from social media and from mom and dad and from your, from your peers to perform and to be and to do and to look a certain way. Right? Those things are all anxiety-inducing too. But we are anxious about, the, uh, about our future. Uh, we are anxious about what it might hold. The problems are so big and they are so complicated that we feel out of control. And that is why we are looking for a Superman. We are looking for a Superman, for someone who can fix it and to make everything wrong right again. 
Now, it is not a coincidence that the popularity of superhero movies is at an all-time high. The Marvel movies, the Avenger movies, the Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men, Black Panther, sort of fill-in-the-blank movies, it's no surprise that the popularity of this kind of movie is at an all-time high. Hollywood is tapping into our cultural consciousness. We are an anxious people who are desperate for a hero, and Hollywood knows that, which is why they are selling that to you and selling that to me and selling it hard. We eat it right up. My question for you tonight is not, are you anxious? I'm assuming that you are. The question is, what are you doing with it? How are you coping with your anxiety? To whom or to what are you turning for help? Jairus goes to Jesus in his anxiety. He goes to Jesus and he begs him to help. But the exchange that follows illustrates another point or maybe another dilemma that we all experience and feel. Not only are we looking for and are anxious for a superman, but the deliverance that we are longing for so often seems so long in coming. We've got to wait for it. It doesn't come quick. And on the way, there's a lot of tears, a lot of grieving on the way. Let's read on. As Jesus went to Jairus' house, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now, when Willa, my daughter, who's now four, when she was still a baby, the three of us, Megan, Will, and me, we all made a trip uh, to northern Virginia to see my mom and stepdad. Uh, all of us were put in the family guest room, uh, Megan and I on the big kid bed, and Willa in a pack and play um, by our side. Well, in the middle of the night, uh, we woke up to the sound of Willow wheezing. It seemed like she was choking on air. Her breathing wasn't right. Something was definitely wrong. And so we woke my mom up in the middle of the night. We hopped into her car. She raced us uh, to the hospital. She pulled up to the curb. We hopped out with our daughter in our arms, still not breathing right, ran into the ER, and was met by a receptionist. We explained to her that we need to see a doctor right away. And the receptionist put her cell phone down, and she told us that we would have to wait. I was furious. I was enraged. One, because she was on her cell phone, and it felt like my daughter was dying in my arms. But secondly, 
Right? She told us that we have to wait. What do you mean right, we have to wait? My daughter is in danger. What are you talking about? I was so angry. Here we were in the hospital. We were so close to the help that my daughter needed. It was almost right behind those swinging doors. I could almost see the doctors behind them who could administer aid so close. And yet in this waiting room felt so far away. I was pissed. Jairus is in a rush. He is practically in an ambulance and riding shotgun next to Jesus. But there is a traffic jam. Right? A bunch of people are crowding around him, not getting out of the way. Right? With the sirens going, we're supposed to get out of the way. That's not what they're doing. They're closing in on him. Right? There's a traffic jam. I picture Jairus getting really twitchy. Like, come on, come on, come on. Let's go. Then Jesus does something expected. And to Jairus, it might even seem cruel. Jesus tells Jairus to hold on because he's got something that he needs to take care of. A woman touches Jesus. He feels power escape him. And Jesus is now on a mission to find her. He needs to find her. He needs to not just heal her of her bleeding, right, which has happened, but he needs to heal her of her broken heart. He needs to heal her of broken relationships. He needs to restore her publicly in front of all these people. That's a story that we told last week. You can listen to that sermon uh, online. But when Jesus steps out of the ambulance, as it were, to tend to this woman, when he tells Jairus, in effect, to wait, I imagine Jairus felt really angry, too. I imagine Jairus felt betrayed by Jesus. I would feel that way. Coming to him in my desperation and only to have him sort of leave my side to go and take care of somebody else, right? Told to wait, to be so close and yet so far away. Look, we don't like to wait. We don't like to wait in line. We don't like to wait two days for our stuff from Amazon to show up at our door. We certainly don't like waiting in doctors' offices or in the waiting rooms of ERs. We do not like to wait. And we import this impatience into our relationship with Jesus. We don't like waiting in those circumstances. and We don't like waiting with him either. We all have problems, and we all have an idea of when and how those problems ought to be fixed. And if Jesus doesn't do what we want, how we want it done, and when we want it done, we can get very impatient. And get angry. I'm guilty of that. I suspect you are too. I have another suspicion. I suspect that our sense of time and Jesus' sense of time are not the same. Time is something we don't seem to have much of these days. And Jesus seems to have it in spades. He has time for everything, right? He has time for everyone. And that's actually a good thing. Come to think of it, we really like that about Jesus. We are glad that he has time for everything and everybody. Glad that he has infinite time for us. But what we don't like 
is when Jesus does things according to his timetable and not ours. We don't like that very much. We're glad that you've got lots of time, Jesus, but can you speed things up? Jairus is in a rush, and Jesus not so much. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus doesn't care? Does that mean Jesus is impotent? He's not powerful? Does that mean Jesus is indifferent? Does it mean that he's unfaithful? Or could it be that Jesus simply sees things from a different perspective? That he has a different vantage than ours? Could it also be that Jesus has more power? More power that you and I grant him? Right? More power that, that he can do more than we could ever ask or imagine? Is that possible? Could it also be that Jesus is okay with us waiting? That there are things, that there are lessons for us to learn that cannot be learned any other way. That there is a lesson he intends to teach us, even tonight, that can only be learned if we wait by the side of the road with Jairus as he goes and he tends to somebody else. Could that be true? Now, don't get me wrong. Right? I don't like waiting, it's hard. It's painful. And sometimes the waiting itself is worse than the suffering that started it. Waiting raises all sorts of questions. It can stoke all kinds of doubts. Like what gives Jesus? Where are you in this? What are you doing over there? Will you do what you set out to do? And can you be trusted? Interestingly enough, the answer in verse 49 appears to be no. It appears that way. Someone from Jairus' house meets them en route, and he delivers the worst news. Your daughter is dead. Now, this is a devastating blow to any dad, let me tell you. This is a staggering truth. Jairus' worst nightmare is coming true. Right? Your girl is gone. Death has taken her like it has taken so many before her and so many since. And the messenger says, do not trouble the teacher anymore. There's nothing left for him to do. There is nothing left for him to do. Jesus failed you, Jairus. And on the surface, that may seem true. Death seems so final. It feels like the ultimate end. And death, the ultimate enemy. Right? It just takes and takes and takes and takes. My grandpa, a man I called Opa, died on this day one year ago. A few weeks later, our dog of seven years, a dog named Coulter, was diagnosed with cancer. And he died a couple of months after his diagnosis on February 10th, 2019. Now, before he died, right around Christmas time, my mom called me. She told me that my cousin Melanie was dead and she had committed suicide. My cousin Melanie left behind two children, Marika and Derek. I went to her memorial service. I saw her dad there 
my uncle. And his body shook as we held each other and we just cried and cried and cried. Melanie is gone. And Jairus' daughter, she's gone too. There are lots of questions that are raised in this moment. There's also a lot for us to learn. This is not the end of the story. Let's come up for air. Let's finish the passage. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. I only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, don't weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. But they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is one of the most important and one of the most powerful moments, I think, that we are presented with in the Gospel of Luke. When we suffer great loss like Jairus did, every one of us here is presented with a very real choice. The first choice that you are presented with is to lose hope, to despair. That is a real choice. The second choice is to put on rose-colored glasses. Here, try these on. Look, it's not that bad. Pretend it's not that bad. Make believe. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do either of these. He He looks Jairus in the eye. He looks us in the eye tonight. If you were here, he'd look us in the eye and say, hey, look, look at me. Do not fear. Don't fear. Only believe, right? She will be well. Stay with me, right? She's going to be okay. Jesus takes Jairus by the hand and figuratively he takes us by the hand too. And he walks him and he walks us to Jairus' house. Uh, There are a bunch of people crying have gathered around. They are weeping and they are mourning their loss. And Jesus tells them, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they scoff and they laugh and they deride Jesus because they know a dead body when they see one. She's not breathing. She is lifeless. She is gone. But Jesus is not phased. He presses in and he presses on. He goes to the little girl's bedside. He takes her by the hand. He gets down on his knees like I do at Willa's bedside when I'm about to kiss her goodnight or when it's time for her to wake up. And holding her by the hand, this very powerful man says very tenderly, child, arise. Honey, it is time for you to wake up. And her spirit returns to her.
and she's brought back to life. She gets up. And Jesus tells the people around her, get her something to eat. She must be hungry. (laughs) Y'all, Jesus is okay to make Jairus wait. Because the gift that he intends to give Jairus is not just for Jairus. It is for us. It's for us tonight. It's for the world. He intends to give all of us gathered around his word, hope. He wants to give you hope. And the hope that he gives you is different from optimism. Optimism looks at the world's brokenness and says it's not that bad. But the truth is, it is. It is that bad. The world is messed up. It is broken. Hope doesn't say it's not that bad. Hope says it's not all that there is. To return to that road trip analogy, it doesn't just look out the windows. The hopeful person doesn't just look out the windows and see things falling apart. Hope also, it sees that for sure, but it also sees somebody in the driver's seat. It also takes Jesus into account. and says, yeah, that's true, but this is also true. Jesus is also for real. Both of those things are true. Despair blinds us to Jesus. Optimism blinds us to the the suffering of the world. But the hope-filled person sees everything. It takes it all into account. And in that regard, the hope-filled person is realistic. Not playing games. And not blinded. Get this girl something to eat. Jesus wants to show Jairus something. And he wants to show us something too. Look, whatever sorrow finds you, whatever troubles befall you, there is nothing that Jesus can't undo. Not even death. Jesus controls it all, even your future. Your anxiety is future-oriented, but hope is future-oriented too. It looks forward and trust. It looks forward and trust that the one who spoke all things into existence also has the power to say to us in our graves, child, arise. The one who spoke the universe into existence can also say to us in our graves, honey, it's time to wake up. That is our hope. And this is not just wishful thinking. This is our confidence. It is our confidence of something we are certain and sure because this is what we have seen again and again and again in the Gospel of Luke. There is a God in heaven who draws near to the brokenhearted. There is a God who is tender, who is at our bedsides, and he is powerful. So don't fear. Only believe. She will be well. And we will be well. It will be okay. I want to close with an illustration. I've used it in the past, maybe a couple of years ago. But um, before I was a campus minister, I was an outward bound instructor. I did a lot of rock climbing. I know some of you rock climb too, Judah. I know you rock climb. Rock climbing is really scary. 
There's no way uh, to rock climb and not to feel anxious, right, at times. It is palm sweaty scary at times. It is dangerous, it is painful, it can be deadly. And there are two ways for you to climb. You can climb without a rope, or you can climb with one on, which is to say you can climb attached to somebody for safety and support. Now, when you do that, you are climbing on belay, and the thing that connects you to your climber is a thing called a belay device or an ATC. I have one in my pocket. This is an ATC. And the thing that connects this to the, the belayer is called a carabiner. This is what a carabiner looks like. Familiar? Some of you hang your keys on this thing. Now, on the side of this carabiner are some numbers. This one says 20, 28 KN. Now that's saying that this thing can hold up to 28 kilonewtons of force. That is a lot of force. Right? This thing can withstand a lot of stress. You are not going to break this thing. This will catch you when you fall. Now life, like rock climbing, is inherently risky and it's painful and it's scary at times. Just living life on planet Earth will give you a palm sweat sometimes. God does not free us from the rock wall. Instead, he gives us his son. He gives us a belayer. He gives us somebody who's going to climb to the top of that rock wall without fail. He's going to set some pro, and then he's going to throw down the rope behind him and say, follow me. You don't have to climb this alone. You can climb this rock wall connected to me, attached to me. I will catch you when you fall. And does that take out all the anxiety? Does that actually prevent you from falling? No. It's still scary. But if you fall, you won't be crushed. You won't be annihilated. What Jesus is doing here tonight, besides raising this girl from the dead, is the same thing he's been doing all along. It's the same thing he's been doing in the storm. It's the same thing he's been doing in the graveyard. It's the same thing he's been doing on the side of the road. He's trying to give you hope, friends. You are anxious because the world's problems seem so big and you don't know what the future holds. But in all of these passages, and especially tonight, Jesus is saying, don't fear. Don't be anxious. Believe in me. He's giving you hope. He's putting you in a harness. He's locking down the carabiner. And he's saying, climb on, because you're attached to me. Let's pray.